So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Joel, Joel chapter 2. Uh, if you're going to use the Red Pew Bible, welcome to use the Red Pew Bible to follow along this morning. Um, that's on page 873. 873. Uh, the Pew Bible is there for use and available. Um, you want to take notes as we go through the service this morning. Uh, in the bulletin, there is a little outline that you can follow along as well and make that available to you uh, for your use. We're starting uh, at verse number 28. Verse number 28. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire, columns of smoke, the sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. For behold, in those days, at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations, have divided up my land, and have cast lots for my people, and have traded a boy for a prostitute, and have sold a girl for wine, and have drunk it. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. For you have taken my silver and my gold, and have carried my rich treasures into your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them, and I will return your payment on your own head, and I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah. And they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. This has a potential to feel like a heavy reading, but there is through-weaved elements of hope. There is blessing that's spoken of in these verses. And it really brings us to a problem regarding the nature and character of God. A mere fondness for humanity is insufficient to atone for the guilt that we incur for sin. God cannot cease to be what he is. He is who he is. And because he loves the world, he is what he is. He is a God of love, but he is also a God that cannot lie, for example. He is he's unable to do that which is against his Nature, And in the same way that it is impossible for God to lie, it is also impossible for God to let sin go unpunished. Justice is just as much a part of God's nature as it is, as is truth is a part of his nature, just as much as love is also a part of his nature. 
It's impossible that God should act contrary to any aspect of his nature. He can't simply set aside his holiness in order to pour out mercy upon uh, people in order to forgive them of their sin. There has to be justice still applied to pay for those sins that have been committed against him. And his justice needs satisfaction. We all internally have a sense and a need and a desire when we have been wronged that we would get satisfaction for what people have done towards us. We ought not think that God is different in this regard. And yet, how he handles and how he chooses to handle that need is very unique, and it's in fact the beauty of the gospel itself. Uh, God had to do something about our sin, and so he did. He created satisfaction very creatively, with infinite wisdom, in a way that the watching world could not even imagine occurring. And uh, there is actually no way for a door of mercy to be available and open for the world if not for God's intervention in creating satisfaction for us. It's the reason why the Son of God took on human flesh. He became a man and he lived a sinless life and then he was crucified. He did this to create satisfaction for us in front of God. Because guilt for sin cannot simply be dismissed without punishment. God would cease to be who he is. He would no longer be true to himself. God cannot lie. And sin is so bad that it cannot be pardoned without an appropriate satisfaction being made. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake the Father made the Son to be sin who knew no sin, so that in the Son we might become the righteousness of God. We would be acceptable to God by joining by faith in what Christ has done for us. The Lord willingly sent his own Son to be a satisfaction for us so that the sins of the world might be placed upon him. And so now we're living in what's called the era of grace, of opportunity to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ freely and openly. There is opportunity, uh, just like the wrath of God was being held back in the days of Noah. In the days of Noah, the floodgates of God's punishment for man's sinfulness were being held back. In, in Noah's day, God's justice for sin is now being held back because there is some satisfaction being made. And one day, though, the stars are going to fall and it's all going to come down. Instead of rain, there will be a catastrophic worldwide judgment for the sins of the world. On Mark 13, Jesus is uh, going up to Jerusalem. He is about ready to be betrayed and to be handed over for crucifixion. He told his disciples that in the coming day there was going to be uh, a time in which the stars would fall from heaven and that the sun and the moon would be darkened at the time of the great day of the Lord. But those things aren't going to happen until it's that time. And so we're living in a day in which we can count upon an open door of opportunity for salvation. 
And it's until the stars fall that the door of salvation is still open for all who would call upon the name of the Lord. In this text, we see glimpses of events that occurred just after Jesus' ascension into heaven. There are also glimpses of that which has not yet occurred. There are things that are still in the future. But yet, what we can be thankful for is that God is still pouring out His Holy Spirit in this world. Uh, let's look at Joel 2, verse 28 uh, through 32. And in these verses, we see um, the, the, the text that Peter preached from on the day of Pentecost, in which the Holy Spirit was given as a gift to those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And it, verse 28, we'll just read this again. It says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great day, great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall be, and it shall come to pass, that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter stopped right there and did not finish the verse. He did so for particular reasons, guided by the Holy Spirit. But I want to draw your attention in verse 28 to the word poor. Poor. Pouring here alludes to an coming abundance of rain as a blessing and not of judgment. In the previous text that we looked at last Sunday, we saw in verse uh, 23, we saw there was reason to be glad, O children of Zion, rejoicing because God had given the early and latter rains, he gave it in great abundance. It was something that was a blessing and not of judgment. Now the earth needs predictable seasons of rain. It needs the continuity of, of springtime and, and harvest and Relatively speaking, this points to the activity of the Holy Spirit working within a predictable way. We have not always seen the Holy Spirit throughout history operating in a very predictable way. There were times and times gone by in which particular people were anointed with the Holy Spirit as it came upon them to help them with leading and, and guiding the nation of Israel. And one such leader was Elijah. Elijah, you may recall, raised the dead through the power of the Holy Spirit. He fed a needy widow, and then he went into heaven with chariots of fire. He was taken a whole being into heaven. There was no burial. His whole body, soul, and spirit went directly into heaven. Elijah was anointed by the Holy Spirit to preach. And he preached a repentance. People being called to come back to him. And he had, in his day actually, what might appear to be very little success. Even though he was anointed with the Holy Spirit. Yet God, even though in his day redeemed people 
individually responding to what Elijah preached. And yet those who were unwilling to hear were slaughtered, they were removed as Israel lost its place in the land of, of Palestine. They lost their national identity and it was a day of great wickedness. And I would say that we're also very much so living in a day very similar to that of Elijah. Wickedness is all about our faces. We don't have to turn very far. In fact, we can pull it out of our pockets and we can see wickedness very soon, very quickly. It's on our hand, in our handheld devices. It's taunting us in Washington. And actually, God's wrath, as it was in the day of Elijah, as it was in the day of Jesus, his wrath is being held back momentarily. And the Spirit is even speaking today. And are people listening? Are people hearing him speak? If we respond to the Holy Spirit's conviction, then we will, res we will receive the joy of the Lord into our hearts. And what's being communicated in Joel 2, verse 28, in spite of the fact that there was a tremendous pouring out in the first century, God is still pouring out his Spirit to those who respond to the message of grace. Now, in verse 28 and 29, I want us to, to see how this connects to what occurred so many years ago. 2,000 years ago by this point, the Holy Spirit began to be poured out at Pentecost. Peter's first sermon, as I said, was preached at a Jewish festival called the, the Festival of First Fruits. That was the name the Jews gave to the festival that occurred 50 days after the Passover. And it's a really beautiful picture of God's pouring out. The first fruits of harvest was brought and given to, before the Lord as an act of worship. The first fruits anticipating more, more fruit coming. And as God poured out his spirit, he was like harvesting souls, if you will. And there was a, a, a kind of indication that this was the beginning of something continuing, that there would be ongoing activity of the Holy Spirit in uh, the work of the church. It's such an appropriate time for God to pour out his Holy Spirit, and it speaks marvelously of God's design and intention to redeem uh, the world. Uh, Peter, as he was preaching, he, he stopped short. He stopped partway through uh, verse 32, in which uh, he, he invited everyone to, to call out upon the name of the Lord to be saved from their sins, and he stopped. And the Spirit instructed him to stop at that point. And why might that have occurred? Well, first, the Holy Spirit coming down and causing, causing Jews to start speaking in foreign languages was a sign to the Jewish people that this was going to be a changing dynamic. Now the gospel, the Gentiles had to go to Jerusalem to the, the Gentiles went to Jerusalem to get the truth. Now the truth was going to go out to the nations and spread throughout the world. There was also a warning in this, in this preaching of Peter. A warning that coming judgment was going to fall upon them if they would not respond to their crucified and resurrected Messiah. 
It's remarkable from my viewpoint that the portents of blood and the fire and the columns of smoke, the darkening of the sun, the moon, the blood, all of those things, all of those things speak of judgment on a catastrophic level, and they speak of something that has not yet been fulfilled, even to this time. Peter stopped short, actually, regarding the imminent threat of judgment in verse 32 imminent threat of judgment that would immediately actually, within even their lifetime, fall upon Mount Zion and also Jerusalem. And specifically, Paul, Peter was highlighting how that at this time the Spirit was starting to be poured out and would continue on uh, until the great day in which the Lord would come and the he heavens and the stars would fall and bring judgment upon the whole, whole world. I want you to see that, yes, it, the Holy Spirit began to be poured out in the days of the first disciples, but the Holy Spirit is given, it's given indiscriminately to all who would call upon the name of the Lord for their own need of salvation. Verse 32, let me read those words again. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This was a text that Paul referred to in his book called Romans. He was very aware of the ongoing available, uh, available opportunity for salvation to all who would call upon him. In the days of Elijah, the Holy Spirit came upon his people selectively for specific purposes to advance the, the sequences of the coming Messiah. Now the Holy Spirit is being poured out on all flesh. And this is clearly a new era in which this is occurring, in which the least to the greatest have access to a relationship with God himself. It speaks of sons and daughters, old men, young men, male and female servants. It's uh, remarkably similar to what Paul said in Galatians chapter 3 when he said there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male, female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. There is no more any limits. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord may be saved. Now these are days in which we are seeing wickedness be celebrated exponentially. But the mercy of God is greater still. And all who sense their own need of a Savior ought to recognize that the door of opportunity is wide open and still available for you. Christ, the Son of God, denied himself. He denied himself and he hung on that glorious tree. He hung there so that the door could be held open and hold off the wrath of God before it would come. Christ denied himself, and he calls us to do the same. He calls us to carry our cross, give up our right to self-autonomy, self and follow him. The Christian message is incredibly offensive because it calls us to wholeheartedly deny ourselves 
and trust him for salvation and trust him to do what we cannot do. Repentance means this, that I know who I am and I know what's best for me and we put that away. Our culture inflames this, this desire for self so strongly and calls us to live our authentic selves. We have this innate tendency to say to ourselves, I know who I am and I know what's best for me and I'm not going to listen to anyone else. What repentance means is that I'm going to deny what I think is best and submit my heart to what God tells me is best. Rosaria Butterfield, who in her previous unconverted life was very active in uh, lesbian culture, taught at elite schools. She actually taught in the English department at Syracuse University. And she said this very profoundly. She said, proud people always feel that they can live independently from God and from other people. Proud people feel entitled to do what they want when they want to. And what the gospel does is it calls us to deny ourselves and respond to the great king of kings who denied himself to provide the salvation that we desperately need. Being true to ourselves will actually take us to hell. And that's a hard message to hear because being true to ourselves is so entwined in our American culture. The gospel of Jesus Christ says repent and love God more than self. Where do we get the kind of heart and kind of love that God requires? Where do we get that? It comes by grace through faith. And this is not your doing. It is the gift of God. It is the gift of God through the Holy Spirit coming into your heart to give you new desires, to give you a new heart. Jesus said, Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There's so many people around us that want rest. Are they willing to do what Jesus has asked us to do in order to find the rest they so desire? It is the good news of Jesus Christ. He's holding back the wrath of God for sins. He's made a way for us to come to him, a merciful way, and that door is open. We ought to be encouraging one another to give up upon trying to do things our own way. We ought to be calling one another to leave the wearisome road of self-love. We ought to be coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. He will give us what we need. The Holy Spirit will spare you from the day of the Lord, verse 30 to 32. Uh, we, we find... Uh, Joel telling us he's weaving elements of, of future together. And verse 32, I want to particularly look at the last section of that verse in which Joel says, It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion 
And in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. I personally believe that this verse refers to destruction that occurred just immediately after Pentecost, within 20, 30 years after Pentecost, with the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Just about 40 years later, actually. You might not be familiar with this period of history in which uh, the Jews revolted against the Roman overlords who were controlling their political affairs. It was a long and bitter siege, and Vespasian, uh, the Roman governor at the time, the, the Caesar actually, sent his son Titus in, surrounded the city of Jerusalem, and broke the city. It was a definite historical turning point in which the church pivoted towards the Gentiles. But before the revolt, there were Christians who fled from the city, and they crossed over the Jordan into a nearby community called Pelham. And they did this to avoid the coming conflict with Rome, and that's what I believe Joel is referring to, is the escape from Mount Zion and Jerusalem. And within a relatively short period of time, Really, after the pouring out of the Spirit, these elements started to come together. And while I recognize that the fall of Jerusalem is very close to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, I also recognize that the signs in heaven that are recognized by Joel have not yet occurred. There are portents of the great day of the Lord that are described, but they have not yet come. Because there will be a gathering together of Israel that is described in chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. And while we recognize that we are in an era of grace and opportunity, we also have to take note that God is still pouring out His Holy Spirit, but He is also still covenant-keeping with Israel. Verses 1 through 8, I see these truths, and they are important for us to consider, uh, that we not be filled with pride, that we recognize that God is not done with his people yet. Uh, Israel became a nation, again, after it was destroyed by Babylon. Miraculously, Israel has become a nation again after it was destroyed by Rome. God is not finished with his people. And although it is currently propped up by Western powers, it's nevertheless, it is a land again. It is a land again, and as a secular nation, they have a great need for the presence of the Lord to be in their midst. Now the text indicates that the pouring out of the Holy Spirit will continue until the great day of the Lord occurs. And uh, this phrase refers to the cosmic signs and the massive buildup of arms that will come and invade the land of Israel. If God is full of love for his people, they are a wayward people, they continually provoke his jealousy, and yet he has never fully revoked his covenant promises that he has made to Abraham. Because of his God's great people, God's love for his people, he does not break covenant with them. Paul says this in Romans chapter 11. Uh, Paul says that they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God will gather all nations 
around Israel for judgment, verses 1 to 2 of chapter 3 tell us, for behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people, my heritage, Israel. Joel's looking down the corridors of time, and he's seeing, he's seeing restoration, he's seeing the Holy Spirit being poured out, he's, he's seeing the gathering of the nations together to be judged for how they have mistreated Israel through the centuries. It's entirely possible that we are living in that last day. We don't know when we will see the heavens open with the portents that are described here in Joel. Blood and fire and columns of smoke, sun being turned to blackness and the moon to blood. All nations, though, will be brought into what's called the Valley of Jehoshaphat. We, we don't know exactly where in Israel this Valley of Jehoshaphat is. But we do know that the name Jehoshaphat means, literally, Jehovah Judges. And so we extrapolate from that, that that this is a place where God will do judgment with the nations in a valley in which decisions will be, have to be made, whether for God or against God and his people. We're going to come to that in verse 14 later on in subsequent weeks. But it's going to be a place where the killing fields of the Somme, the killing fields of Quezon in Vietnam will be nothing in comparison. It will be a time in which God will gather and vindicate Israel with justice. In verse 2 and 3, we see God giving reasons for his need to bring justice. Just as God cannot lie, he cannot just excuse sin. He has to bring judgment for it. Verse 2 Joel says that the nations have, have scattered his people throughout the nations, and they've divided up my land. They've cast lots for my people. They've traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and, and have drunk it. They've, they've cast lots. They've trafficked young people. I, I, you know, you, you notice also the repeated use of the word my. It's a very powerful reminder of God's commitment to his people. His identification with them. This is his land, his people. And even the land itself is not fully theirs. It's God's. And God has made it clear that the whole land belongs to him. It was his. It was the land that he gave to his servant Abraham. Now, even when Israel was given the opportunity to set up homes and to build and to sell and to trade, they were never really able to fully deed the land to themselves. In Leviticus 25, we read these words, that the land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. You are strangers and sojourners with me in all the land that you possess. And you shall grant a redemption in the land. Now, for centuries, Israel has been scattered throughout the nations. They've been sold, they've been trafficked, 
They've been abused in recent memory in the last hundred years in Europe. They've been, there's so many atrocities that have been committed against them. God is not going to overlook how the world has treated his people. And God is jealous over his heritage, Israel. Verses 4 through 8, we see God bringing payment back to people through the centuries for what they have done to his people. Just as it is impossible for God to lie, it's impossible for God to turn back his, his promises that he has made to Abraham. It's not in his nature. God had forbidden Israel as an institution uh, from, from excluding others from the congregation, and yet God had made promises to Israel in order to, to allow them to have rights to the land. God opened the gates of the tents of Abraham and allowed the Gentiles to come in, and that was a mystery to the Jews. But yet we know that this was part of his plan because voila, here we are. We are here as a part of the mystery of God's plan. We know now it was part of his plan, so now it's not quite the mystery to us as it once might have been if we had grown up Jewish. God had not utterly abandoned the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he doesn't abandon them even today. Paul said in Romans chapter 11, the gifts and the calling of God upon Israel are irrevocable. God is jealous over his heritage, Israel, and as I say, just as it is impossible for God to lie, it's impossible for him to let sin go, it is also impossible for him to turn his back upon his people. And we see in verses 4 through 8 that the Lord is standing up for his people. There's a holy jealous, jealousy there that keeps calling Israel out of the grave. What countries like Germany try to destroy and wipe Israel off the map, they grow up even larger and bigger. The Egyptians try to destroy the people of God, and they become a mighty nation. There is, you can't hurt Israel to the point in which God will reject them. He continues to pour out blessings upon them. It may be very mysterious to us as now living in the church era to understand the possibility that, that God would have any sort of relationship with Israel as a nation again. We as Gentiles, most of us here, I suspect, are Gentile, non-Jewish, but there may be some who have Jewish roots or whatnot. But as Gentiles, we are being grafted into the tents. We are being grafted into God's people. And uh, we were at one time not recognized as being special to God. And as mysterious as that was, now we face the equal hard task of understanding how God can now turn back to his people. There is a future salvation for Israel that's described by Paul and anticipated even by Joel. A future salvation of ethnic Israel will be mysterious to us, but it is not a mystery in the mind of God. He will receive glory 
when he pours out his Holy Spirit upon his people. Zechariah described it this way. He said in Zechariah 12, verse 10, he said, And I will pour out upon the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace, please of mercy, so that when they look upon me and him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn son. Paul was a Jewish man. He was speaking to Gentiles, and he, he wrote to Gentiles, and there were Jews listening to, and he talked about God's love in Romans 8 that would not let them go. Where did he get that doctrine to share with Gentiles? He got that doctrine by looking at the rock-solid love of God for his own people, Israel. If God will not allow his own people to be utterly wiped off the face of the earth, then he will not allow you to be utterly wiped off the face of this earth. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And as we look at God's relationship with his chosen people, we can give thanks and stand, we stand humbled by the fact that he had in design and intentions to pour out his Holy Spirit upon us as well. Paul understood that the sands of time could not overwhelm God's people. Dictators cannot overcome the promises that are made to Abraham. You know, in Normandy, France, and Germans, we often think about our own war cemeteries, but the Germans also have a war cemetery there as well. At Le Cambe War Cemetery, there are over 12,000 internments. There are, such, there are six such internment locations throughout Europe for Germans who died outside of Germany. And there's a memorial at Le Cambe that, that in the center there's a, a, a large cross, and on that cross there is words which are true, and they are these. God has the final word. God does have the final word. He will have the final word. He is still pouring out his spirit, and he is still keeping covenant with Israel, and from that we can extrapolate application to us that he will not let us go either. That is a tremendous truth. And until the stars fall, the door of salvation is open to all who would call upon his name. He's still pouring out his spirit, still covenant keeping. And when John the Baptist was introducing Jesus to Israel, he described Jesus as being someone who was mightier, someone who was having greater stature than himself. He said to his audience, he said, it would be unwise to ignore his coming because he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and also with fire. Just as the wrath of God is being held back, like the floodwaters in Noah's day, Jesus is holding back the floodgate of the wrath of God against sin. His arms are, if you will, still outstretched, holding it back. 
Paul said this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. He said, that day is coming like a thief in the night. But you are not in darkness, brothers and sisters. For that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are children of the light, children of the day. So let's not sleep as those who sleep at night and get drunk. Let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for helmet the hope of salvation. God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that we might awake, or whether we be asleep, we would be alive in him. Therefore, encourage one another, build one another up, just as you are doing. Let's pray.